Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories this week, the Justice Department announced that they filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google, accusing them of monopolizing the online search and search advertising markets. And it's no secret that Google is a major player in these areas. The Justice Department is alleging that about 80% of American search queries go through Google. Also, its Chrome browser controls about 70% of the global online browser market, and 85% of smartphones globally run its Android operating system. This is just a first step in what could be a lengthy and messy court battle. For more on what the DOJ is alleging and what it could mean for consumers, we'll speak to Kyle Daly, technology editor at Axios. This is pretty indisputable stuff, right? I mean, when you think of search, you think of Google. I mean, there is uh, Microsoft Bing, there's some other alternatives, but, you know, they're pretty thinly used. The DOJ points out in the suit that Google controls about 88% of what it calls general search, which is, you know, searching the open web, searching Google Maps, searching for general information. That's not like, hey, I'm on Amazon and I want to search this closed platform for a specific product. And the challenge with bringing antitrust cases against these big tech companies is that a lot of them, like Google, you know, they're free to use. There isn't really a clear, clean, observable consumer harm where it's like prices went up because of your monopoly. That's bad. We're going to crack down on you. You know, there are no prices for the consumer. So they have to sort of do two things here. One is define a market that's being monopolized which can be kind of challenging itself. So, you know, what you first have to do is establish, okay, here's something where Google clearly has a monopoly. And that is, as you say, online search. And then B, it's causing harm. So what DOJ is saying the harm is, is really to competition or sort of would-be competition that Google has used its position and that it uses agreements that it makes with Apple, uh, with wireless carriers, with Samsung and other companies that actually make phones that run Android to lock it in as the default search engine on your smartphone or sort of through your carrier or on your web browser. And then it uses that to achieve this market dominance and shore up its market dominance. And then that's sort of this self-fueling thing where the more ubiquitous Google is, the better its product becomes because it can feed the engine with more data and it just sort of breaks away from the competition. It's definitely there. You know, you think of things like Kleenex or Xerox, you know, those are the brand names for whatever the things that they kind of represent. Now, you don't hear somebody say, hey, go Bing that. You People say, go Google that. I mean, it's a product that we know and everybody uses all the time. What does Google say in response to all of this? Because I, just reading some of it, they, you know, they said, well, our product is just so good that That's why people like to use it. And they have the other options and they just don't. Yeah. I mean, that's why this is such an interesting case. And that's why, you know, we kind of expect to continue seeing antitrust cases possibly brought against some of these big tech companies, particularly Facebook, but also Amazon, possibly Apple, that there's a high likelihood that regardless of which party is in power, we're going to keep seeing this 
So they say exactly what, what you said in response. They say they wouldn't use the word monopoly, but they sort of cop to monopolizing the search market. But they say that's just because we're that good. You know, the other options are out there. You are free as a consumer to choose them. You're free to change the default on your phone so that it's searching Bing or Google or DuckDuckGo. You can do the same thing on your browser. People stick with us. This is you know, Google talking because we, we just have the best search engine and we're not deliberately taking any action to prevent competition. Yeah. You know, they say these, these same arrangements that they make with Apple to be the default in Safari. Um, they say, you know, the other guys are totally free to do that. And if they had a better product, then maybe they would have more, more of these agreements like we have. One of the things I noted in your article and a bunch of other places, too, is that antitrust lawsuits move really slowly. You had some examples, one against Microsoft beginning in 97. It took five years. There was another one that began in the 70s against IBM that took 13 years. So this could take a long time. This is just kind of the first step. What's the ultimate end game on, on behalf of the Justice Department to break up Google even more? Or, or you know, what's the what's the end game for it? They're pretty ambiguous about what exactly they want. They say, you know, enjoin Google against doing this kind of thing in the future. So they want the court to do something to stop Google from engaging in these same behaviors. And then they raise the possibility of structural remedies, which, you know, in non-legalese generally would mean, yeah, breaking up Google. So say forcing it to sell off its search advertising business or its entire advertising business, or, you know, probably not sell off, but at least spin off, you know, break off into, into a separate company or its search business period. That's the kind of thing that we'd be thinking about when we talk about structural remedies. Now, is that going to happen? (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty untested stuff. And yeah, as you know, I mean, those past cases, they ended up, being these distractions for the companies, the, you know, Microsoft sort of lost its grip on the computing ecosystem between the 90s and the 2000s. You know, it's, it's still a juggernaut, but it's different. It doesn't, it's not synonymous with computing the way that it was in the 90s. And, you know, the, the upshot of that was that the Justice Department did not win. There was sort of some weird they won an initial judgment and it looked like microsoft was headed towards maybe being broken up but then not got overturned i mean you know there will be appeals this is going to be a long drawn out thing that could very well end up in the supreme court you know a decade from now so there's not going to be any kind of quick resolution unless there's some smaller fix um you know google can make some agreement that will uh get the DOJ to sort of call things off and settle, you know, and and what that looks like, or if that's even going to be an option, that's just sort of something we'll have to see play out over the coming year. Kyle Daly, technology editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We've been hearing a lot throughout this election cycle about voter fraud and the president has been saying it a lot that the election is rife with fraud. There's going to be a lot of concern with mail-in ballots. When we hear from officials, they say the elections are safe. There's no need to worry. But there's a real concern on the part of voters. 
For more on this, we'll speak to Corbin Carson. He's a reporter at KFI News in Los Angeles, and he's going to talk to us about his seven-part series. You can catch it all at KFIAM640.com, keyword fraud. But we started off by listening to the voters themselves to hear their concerns. I think they're just not finding they're not reporting it. It's not insignificant. It's hiding in plain sight. There's always fraud, period, no matter what. Ballots being sent to people who don't even know they're receiving a ballot. How can it not be rife with fraud? I'm terrified over voter fraud. I'd rather go to the booth physically. That way I know I put it in and somebody didn't alter it in any way. So, Corbin, you made a seven-part series. We're going to talk about the first four parts, and next week we'll join back up with you to talk about the last three. But start us off. You took a tour with the Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly, to go through the life of a ballot and and all the protections and and individual things that are put in there to help keep uh, these things up and up. That was one of the most interesting parts of this is during that tour, Kelly told me about that he doubled his capacity for printing and scanning in preparation for this surge of mail-in ballots. He says back in March, when it was in the primary, he noticed that he had the inclination of, what if everybody had to vote by mail-in? What if that was like nationwide, depending on how bad the virus had got? So that was his preparation. And we used Orange County, uh, the Orange County Registrar's Office as kind of an example for what a ballot might go through. Keep in mind that every county runs elections different. There's over 3,100 counties in the nation. So a lot of them are different, but there are some similarities. And one of the things that we learned over there is that the first thing I I learned, at least in Orange County, is that they do everything, all the printing process is done in-house. So the ballot is kept in-house from the printing process all the way through to when it's mailed out. And so once it's mailed out, there's a bunch of new technologies that were mentioned, and you can listen to him explain that in clip two. There's new technology, and what it does is it sprays a barcode on the return envelope for the voter. So when a voter puts this back in the mail, they can see the full service of that ballot being tracked. So they can get a text message from us and says, you mailed your ballot, we received it, it's been counted. I always tell people, like, if you're going to track your pet food coming from Amazon, why aren't you tracking your ballot? I forgot that he mentioned that Amazon part, but that was his point, because I had heard so many different people talk about ballot dumping. You heard that in that clip we played at the beginning, constantly ballot dumping, ballot dumping, ballot dumping. And if you think about it, because of the data and the way that they can track things now, the government, I've heard even voters tell me this, the ones that were not against voter fraud, the government has everybody down to a number, just like your ballot, just like the tracking system. So if an Amazon driver, if you just to take his example a little bit further, if an Amazon driver were to have, let's say, 50 packages in his truck of varying degrees, and he decided, hey, I'm just going to leave all this stuff at my house, no one's going to notice. You and I both know the buyer's going to notice, the seller's going to notice, and Amazon's going to notice <laughs> right. because all that stuff is tracked. From what Neil Kelly was saying, they can maybe not track the individual mail carrier, but they know who has it around which area. And it goes beyond that. There's specific paper types that these ballots are printed on, watermarks, the barcodes, signature verifications. Mm -hmm. There's four layers of that. So there's a lot of protections in place to make sure that at least once you get it and turn it back in and it gets counted, that it's going to be from you. And they're tracking that data, he told me, every day. So on the return side, if a bunch of ballots from one zip code or one area don't come back, that's going to be noticed in the data. That's one of those big data things that you can easily pick out. Like, hey, we're expecting X amount of ballots and all of a sudden 10, 100, 1,000 have disappeared from this area. It's obvious that this is where it came from. Plus, you have to remember another thing that I was asked a lot about was how many live ballots are out there. That was a big concern because of this record number of mail-in voting that's going on. 
And so the idea being the record now, I, I think we just heard the other day, was there's already almost 4 million ballots that have been received in California. And at this time, during the 2016 election, it was around 400,000. So that's an incredible increase, and that's just California. So people were concerned that they were just randomly mailing out ballots to anyone, whether they were voters, not voters, people who are not allowed to vote, et cetera. And one of the things that the registrar told me is something that everyone does across countywide is these ballots are only sent out to register voters. So there's only one voter per ballot. If you think about all the different kinds of things you hear about concerns as far as fraud, that really kills a whole lot of things. Because if you're dumping a bunch of ballots, 100 ballots, let's say, you're assuming those 100 people aren't going to vote. So maybe you get five of them, and then you you fill them out and assuming you can get past the signature process, <laughs> right. et cetera, 95 people are going to say, hey, where's my ballot? And then when they go and ask, the, the, the registrar is going to say, you already voted. And what are 95 people going to say? No, I didn't. See what I'm saying? And that's just one of many things that comes out in this series that shows how difficult it would be to pull off something like this. I have to say, I was really enjoying listening to the first four parts and I was making notes and obviously it's a theme, recurring theme you're going back to, but despite some of of the evidence, some of the technology that goes into all of this, people don't care. They really think that there's something to this, that there is some type of voter fraud or election fraud stuff going on. And one of the parts that you delved into for this series was the data on voter fraud. And really, there was a, a very minuscule amount of cases that came forward through this. And, and you led a team of people that looked into all of this. Tell us a little bit about that data. This project we're doing here for KFI started a few weeks ago, but I started studying voter fraud when I was in graduate school in 2012. I led a team of reporters as part of a fellowship, and I had this idea. They were like, why don't you look into voter fraud? And I was like, well, why don't we just go and count it? Because, you know, I'm a, at this point, I'm a graduate student. That sounds easy. And they looked at me like, I don't think you know what you're getting yourself into. But what it ended up being was a year-long process. We're talking thousands of public records requests, follow-ups. I mean, I'm getting coffee stained responses from this pokey town in Nebraska at no voter fraud, you know, whatever. But if you think about this for a second, I am asking for, and this was in the 2012 election, the big thing that year was the voter ID laws. The next year was the hacking with the 2016. And then this year, obviously, it's the mail-in. But in 2012, I'm sending public records requests to Republican counties and Democrat counties. I mean, we're talking Secretary of State. We're talking the Attorney General. We're talking each county's election official begging for voter fraud. So if you're a Republican or a Democrat who really wants to push this narrative that there needs to be voter ID laws, for people to be elected, here's your chance to send all this voter fraud to me and we want cases, et cetera. And don't get me wrong, we got a lot. We got 2,068 cases, but it was 2,068 cases of all different types of election irregularities. And that's brought out, I think, in today's part of the series where we break down the difference between voter fraud and election fraud because that explains some of this narrative and where people get confused. So that 2,068 cases keep in mind, was over the course of 12 years. And during that time, more than 1.2 billion votes were cast. So when you do the math, it's this very minuscule amount. And a lot of this was mistakes. It was election officials trying to stay in office and they wanted to live over here, but they were over there. That was called voter fraud <laughs> yeah. or a person, if you remember, acorn, et cetera. I want to jump in with the rate because uh, in the notes uh, that I had, you did the math. That was a rate of 0. 
0.0007% of voter fraud cases. And you mentioned it ranged a bunch of different things. So briefly, in the time that we have left, tell us a little bit about the difference between voter fraud and election fraud, because there's different concerns, registration fraud, double voting. I know a lot of concern for people, as you mentioned, the voter ID. Why can't you just vote with an ID? These are all the different kinds of concerns. Double voting, dead voting, campaign fraud, ballot harvesting. And the interesting part is you also have the different people doing it. Maybe it's an election official. Maybe it's a campaign official. Maybe it's a third party like the acorn I just mentioned, or, and then always all the way down to the voter, which was the least one. And I know if if we're running out of time, I do want to get this third clip in. It's from UC Irvine professor, Rick Hassan. This is a guy that's been doing this 20 years. He talks about in one of our parts of the series, how here's a nationally respected election official, and he respects the data. He relies, he said, on the data that we did, not because it was anything amazing that we did, but it was because we did the push-ups. We went and actually did the heavy lifting that no one had done to ask everyone for what it is. And that's why that particular database is still It's been updated since then and nothing more has been found. But what he's about to say in this clip, it lends to the idea of what people would have to go through to try to swing an election. It would be, what is the point? Like, basically, you're risking years in prison for one vote. What are you getting out of it? And if you want to go ahead and play, it's clip three. If you were trying to swing the presidential election, you know, you'd have to have thousands of ballots being cast and people would notice if their ballots were stolen from their mailboxes or someone was requesting them and voting them on their behalf because when they'd go to vote, they'd see that they couldn't. You do see occasional attempts to have conspiracies to swing elections with absentee ballots or other kinds of fraud. But those are hard to pull off. They happen in very small elections, typically. The idea that you could pull it off in a presidential election and not be detected is not a reasonable thing to think. There are just too many protections in order to be able to do something like that. And just two quick things on this here. One, I want to make very, very clear. Every person we talk to, every law enforcement official, there's people that are looking for that for this year and and past years. Every election official, every academic, they're not saying that couple of things in small elections is not important. They're trying to catch that. No one is saying that it can't happen. I mean, we're watching the news. These people are getting double ballots in the mail, though, which is an election accident, not an, not fraud. These people over here, the whole system is down, et cetera. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of making sure, and none of these officials were either, of the importance of making sure that elections are secure. So they constantly were saying we're adding new securities. We're constantly upping the you know, watermarks on the ballots, et cetera, to make sure people can't get away with stuff. And they're prosecuting the people that actually do get caught. The second thing I want to mention out of what he said is think about what a person does when they're going through a crime. They're trying to get something out of it. You go steal a car. You're at least going to drive that car until they catch you. But if you do all this work, get through all those things we've talked to here and you get your one vote through. Yay. You don't even know if your guy's going to win. (laughs) There's no chance that you're, you don't know for sure that that one vote that you're risking, at least it's four years here in California. It's five years, other places. You're risking that for the chance of something that won't work. And keep in mind, we're talking about something that has to go through the signature checks. It has to get accepted. You would have to get a voter that didn't want to vote. I've named them. And there's several more that I'm probably forgetting right now, all for the chance of something that isn't certain. You know, there's, the outcome is not certain. I have to say that the seven-part series, what I've heard so far, is really enlightening. you got some more stuff coming up on ballot harvesting, voter intimidation, Americans losing trust in the integrity of these elections, what that all means. So we'll touch base next week to finish all this off. But Corbin Carson, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles and Orange County, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.